Penguin Random House Audio presents The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy C. Weingard Read for you by Mark Deakins To my parents, Charles and Marion, who filled my formative years with knowledge, travel, curiosity, and love. Introduction we are at war with the mosquito. A swarming and consuming army of 110 trillion enemy mosquitoes patrols every inch of the globe save Antarctica, Iceland, the Seychelles, and a handful of French Polynesian micro-islands. The biting female warriors of this droning insect population are armed with at least 15 lethal and debilitating biological weapons against our 7.7 .7 billion humans deploying suspect and often self-detrimental defensive capabilities. In fact, our defense budget for personal shields, sprays, and other deterrents to stymie her unrelenting raids has a rapidly rising annual revenue of $11 billion. And yet, her deadly offensive campaigns and crimes against humanity continue with reckless abandon. While our counterattacks are reducing the number of annual casualties she perpetrates, the mosquito remains the deadliest hunter of human beings on the planet. Last year, she slaughtered only 830,000 people. We sensible and wise Homo sapiens occupied the runner-up number two spot, slaying 580,000 of our own species. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation which has contributed nearly $4 billion to mosquito research since its creation in 2000, releases an annual report that identifies the animals most lethal to humans. The contest is not even close. The heavyweight champion and our apex predator in perpetuity is the mosquito. Since 2000, the annual average number of human deaths caused by the mosquito has hovered around 2 million. We come in a distant second at 475,000, followed by snakes, 50,000, dogs and sand flies, 25,000 each, the tsetse fly, and the assassin or kissing bug, 10,000 each. The fierce killers of lore and Hollywood celebrity appear much further down our list. The crocodile is ranked number 10 with 1,000 annual deaths. Next on the list are hippos with 500, and elephants and lions with 100 fatalities each. The much-slandered shark and wolf share the number 15 position, killing an average of 10 people per annum. For this time period, annual death statistics for mosquito-borne diseases vary between 1 and 3 million. The consensus usually straddles an average of 2 million. The mosquito has killed more people than any other cause of death in human history, Statistical extrapolation situates mosquito-inflicted deaths approaching half of all humans that have ever lived. In plain numbers, the mosquito has dispatched an estimated 52 billion people from a total of 108 billion throughout our relatively brief 200,000-year existence. These are estimates and extrapolations based on the following factors and scientific models the origin and longevity of both Homo sapiens and mosquito-borne diseases in Africa, the time frame and patterns of the migrations of humans, mosquitoes, 
and mosquito-borne diseases out of Africa, the first appearance and evolution of numerous genetic hereditary defenses to distinct strains of malaria, historical death rates from mosquito-borne disease, human population growth and demography, historic periods of natural climate change and global temperature fluctuations, among other contributing considerations and components. Yet the mosquito does not directly harm anyone. It is the toxic and highly evolved diseases she transmits that cause an endless barrage of desolation and death. Without her, however, these sinister pathogens could not be transferred or vectored to humans nor continue their cyclical contagion. In fact, without her, these diseases would not exist at all. You cannot have one without the other. The nefarious mosquito, roughly the size and weight of a grapeseed, would be as innocuous as a generic ant or housefly, and you would not be listening to this account. After all, her dominion of death would be erased from the historical record, and I would have no wild and remarkable tales to tell. Imagine for a moment a world without deadly mosquitoes, or any mosquitoes for that matter. Our history and the world we know, or think we know, would be completely unrecognizable. We might as well live on a foreign planet in a galaxy far, far away. As the pinnacle purveyor of our extermination, the mosquito has consistently been at the front lines of history as the grim reaper, the harvester of human populations, and the ultimate agent of historical change. She has played a greater role in shaping our story than any other animal with which we share our global village. Within these bloody and disease-plagued pages, you will embark on a chronological mosquito-tormented journey through our tangled communal history. Karl Marx recognized in 1852 that men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. It was the steadfast and insatiable mosquito that manipulated and determined our destiny. It is perhaps a rude blow to the amour propre of our species, writes acclaimed University of Georgetown history professor J.R. McNeil, to think that lowly mosquitoes and mindless viruses can shape our international affairs. But they can. We tend to forget that history is not the artifact of inevitability. A common theme throughout this story is the interplay between war, politics, travel, trade, and the changing patterns of human land use and natural climate. The mosquito does not exist in a vacuum, and her global ascendancy was created by corresponding historical events both naturally and socially induced. Our relatively short human journey from our first steps in and out of Africa to our global historical trails is the result of a coevolutionary marriage between society and nature. We as humans have played a large role in the transmission of mosquito-borne diseases through population migrations, involuntary or otherwise, densities, and pressures. Historically, our domestication of plants and animals, which are reservoirs of disease, advancements in agriculture, deforestation, climate change, natural and artificially encouraged, and global war, trade, and travel have all played a part in nurturing the ideal ecologies for the proliferation of mosquito-borne illnesses. Historians, journalists, and modern memories, however, find pestilence and disease rather dull when compared to war, conquest, 
and national supermen, most often legendary military leaders. The literary record has been tainted by attributing the fates of empires and nations, the outcome of pivotal wars, and the bending of historical events to individual rulers, to specific generals, or to the larger concerns of human agencies such as politics, religion, and economics. The mosquito has been written off as a sidelined spectator, rather than an active agent within the ongoing processes of civilization. In doing so, she has been defamed by this slanderous exclusion of her enduring influence and impact in changing the course of history. Mosquitoes and her diseases that have accompanied traders, travelers, soldiers, and settlers around the world have been far more lethal than any man-made weapons or inventions. The mosquito has ambushed humankind with unmitigated fury since time immemorial and scratched her indelible mark on the modern world order. Mercenary mosquitoes mustered armies of pestilence and stalked battlefields across the globe, often deciding the outcome of game-changing wars. Time and time again, the mosquito laid waste to the greatest armies of her generations. To borrow from acclaimed author Jared Diamond, the endless shelves of military history books and Hollywood fanfare lionizing famed generals distort the ego-deflating truth. Mosquito-borne disease proved far deadlier than manpower, materials, or the minds of the most brilliant generals. It is worth remembering, as we navigate the trenches and tour historic theaters of war, that a sick soldier is more taxing to the military machine than a dead one. Not only do they need to be replaced, but they also continue to consume valuable resources. During our warring existence, mosquito-borne diseases have been prolific battlefield burdens and killers. Our immune systems are finely tuned to our local environments. Our curiosity, greed, invention, arrogance, and blatant aggression thrust germs into the global whirlwind of historical events. Mosquitoes do not respect international borders, walls or no walls. Marching armies, inquisitive explorers, and land-hungry colonists and their African slaves brought new diseases to distant lands, but, on the other hand, were also brought to their knees by the microorganisms in the foreign lands they intended to conquer. As the mosquito transformed the landscapes of civilization, humans were unwittingly required to respond to her piercing universal projection of power. After all, the biting truth is that more than any other external participant, the mosquito, as our deadliest predator, drove the events of human history to create our present reality. I think I can safely say that most of you listening to this have one thing in common, a genuine hatred for mosquitoes. Bashing mosquitoes is a universal pastime and has been since the dawn of humanity. Across the ages, from our hominid ancestral evolution in Africa to the present day, we have been locked in an unsurpassed life-or-death struggle for survival with the not-so-simple mosquito. In this lopsided battle and unequal balance of power, historically, we did not stand a chance. Through evolutionary adaptation, our dogged and deadly arch-nemesis has repeatedly circumvented our efforts of extermination to continue her feverish, uninterrupted feeding and her undefeated reign of terror. The mosquito remains the destroyer of worlds 
and the preeminent and globally distinguished killer of humankind. Our war with the mosquito is the war of our world. Chapter 1 Toxic Twins The Mosquito and Her Diseases it has been one of the most universally recognizable and aggravating sounds on earth for 190 million years, the humming buzz of a mosquito. After a long day of hiking while camping with your family or friends, you quickly shower, settle into your lawn chair, crack an ice-cold beer, and exhale a deep, contented sigh. Before you can enjoy your first satisfying swig, however, you hear that all-too-familiar sound signaling the ambitious approach of your soon-to-be tormentors. It is nearing dusk, her favorite time to feed. Although you heard her droning arrival, she gently lands on your ankle without detection as she usually bites close to the ground. It's always a female, by the way. She conducts a tender, probing, ten-second reconnaissance looking for a prime blood vessel. With her backside in the air, she steadies her crosshairs and zeroes in with six sophisticated needles. She inserts two serrated mandible cutting blades, much like an electric carving knife with two blades shifting back and forth, and saws into your skin. While two other retractors open a passage for the proboscis, a hypodermic syringe that emerges from its protective sheath. With this straw, she starts to suck three to five milligrams of your blood, immediately excreting its water while condensing its 20% protein content. All the while, a sixth needle is pumping in saliva that contains an anticoagulant, preventing your blood from clotting at the puncture site. For this reason, mosquitoes cannot transmit HIV or any other blood-borne virus. The mosquito injects only saliva, which does not and cannot contain HIV, through a specific tube separate from the tube used to take in blood. No blood is transmitted during her bite. This shortens her feeding time, lessening the likelihood that you feel her penetration and splat her across your ankle. The anticoagulant causes an allergic reaction, leaving an itchy bump as her parting gift. The mosquito bite is an intricate and innovative feeding ritual required for reproduction. She needs your blood to grow and mature her eggs. Recent studies suggest that, as a survival mechanism, Aedes mosquitoes can be trained to avoid unpleasant interactions such as swatting for up to 24 hours, making a repeat strike less likely. Please don't feel singled out, special, or view yourself as a chosen one. She bites everyone. This is just the inherent nature of the beast. There is absolutely no truth to the persistent myths that mosquitoes fancy females over males, that they prefer blondes and redheads over those with darker hair, or that the darker or more leathery your skin, the safer you are from her bite. It is true, however, that she does play favorites and feasts on some more than others. Blood type O seems to be the vintage of choice over types A and B or their blend. People with blood type O get bitten twice as often as those with type A, with type B falling somewhere in between. Disney, Pixar must have done their homework when portraying a tipsy mosquito ordering a Bloody Mary O positive in the 1998 movie A Bug's Life. 
Those who have higher natural levels of certain chemicals in their skin, particularly lactic acid, also seem to be more attractive. From these elements, she can analyze which blood type you are. These are the same chemicals that determine an individual's level of skin bacteria and unique body odor. While you may offend others, and perhaps yourself, in this case being pungently rancid is a good thing, for it increases bacterial levels on the skin, which makes you less alluring to mosquitoes. Cleanliness is not next to godliness except for stinky feet, which emit a bacterium, the same one that ripens and rinds certain cheeses, that is a mosquito aphrodisiac. Mosquitoes are also enticed by deodorants, perfumes, soap, and other applied fragrances. While this may seem unfair to many of you, and the reason remains a mystery, she also has an affinity for beer drinkers. Wearing bright colors is also not a wise choice, since she hunts by both sight and smell, the latter depending chiefly on the amount of carbon dioxide exhaled by the potential target. So all your thrashing and huffing and puffing only magnetizes mosquitoes and puts you at greater risk. She can smell carbon dioxide from over 200 feet away. When you exercise, for example, you emit more carbon dioxide through both frequency of breath and output. You also sweat, releasing those appetizing chemicals, primarily lactic acid, that invite the mosquito's attention. Lastly, your body temperature rises, which is an easily identifiable heat signature for your soon-to-be tormentor. On average, pregnant women suffer twice as many bites as they respire 20% more carbon dioxide and have a marginally elevated body temperature. As we will see, this is bad news for the mother and the fetus when it comes to infection from Zika and malaria. Please don't go on a shower, deodorant, and exercise strike or shelve your beloved beer and bright t-shirts just yet. Unfortunately, 85% of what makes you attractive to mosquitoes is pre-wired in your genetic circuit board, whether that be blood type, natural chemical, bacteria, or CO2 levels, metabolism, or stink and stench. At the end of the day, she will find blood from any exposed target of opportunity. Unlike their female counterparts, male mosquitoes do not bite. Their world revolves around two things, nectar and sex. Like other flying insects, when ready to mate, male mosquitoes assemble over a prominent feature, ranging from chimneys to antennas to trees to people. Many of us grumble and flail in frustration as that dogged cloud of bugs droning over our heads shadows us when we walk and refuses to disperse. You are not paranoid, nor are you imagining this phenomenon. Take it as a compliment. Male mosquitoes have graced you with the honor of being a swarm marker. Mosquito swarms have been photographed extending 1,000 feet into the air, resembling a tornado funnel cloud. With the cocksure males stubbornly assembled over your head, females will fly into their horde to find a suitable mate. While males will mate frequently in a lifetime, one dose of sperm is all the female needs to produce numerous batches of offspring. She stores the sperm and dispenses them piecemeal for each separate birthing of eggs. Her short moment of passion has provided one of the two necessary components for procreation. The only ingredient missing is your blood.
Returning to our camping scenario, you just finished your strenuous hike and proceed to the shower, where you richly lather up with soap and shampoo. After toweling off, you apply a healthy dose of body spray and deodorant before finally putting on your bright red and blue beachwear. It is nearing dusk, dinner time for the Anopheles mosquito, and you sit down in your lawn chair to relax with that well-deserved cold beer. You have done everything in your power to lure a famished female Anopheles mosquito, and by the way, I just moved to the seat that is farthest from you. Having just mated in a swarming frenzy of eager male suitors, she willingly takes your bait and makes off with a few drops of your blood. She has taken a blood meal three times her own body weight, so she quickly finds the nearest vertical surface and, with the aid of gravity, continues to evacuate the water from your blood. Using this concentrated blood, she will develop her eggs over the next few days. She then deposits roughly 200 floating eggs on the surface of a small pool of water that is collected on a crushed beer can that was overlooked during cleanup as you and your party headed home. She always lays her eggs in water, although she does not need much. From a pond or stream to a minuscule collection in the bottom of an old container, used tire, or backyard toy, any will suffice. Certain types of mosquitoes desire specific types of water, fresh, salt, or brackish, a mixture, while for others, any water will do the trick. Our mosquito will continue to bite and lay eggs during her short lifespan of an average one to three weeks to an infrequent maximum longevity of five months. While she can fly up to two miles, she, like most mosquitoes, rarely ranges farther than 400 meters from her birthplace. Although it takes a few days longer in cool weather, given the high temperatures, her eggs hatch into wiggling water-bound worms, children, within two to three days. Skimming the water for food, these quickly turn into upside-down, comma-shaped tumbling caterpillars, teenagers, who breathe through two trumpets protruding from their water-exposed buttocks. A few days later, a protective encasement splits and healthy adult mosquitoes take to flight, with a new generation of succubus females anxious to feed on you once more. This impressive maturation to adulthood takes roughly one week. The repetition of this life cycle has been uninterrupted on planet Earth since the first appearance of modern mosquitoes. Research suggests that mosquitoes, identical in appearance to those of today, surfaced as early as 190 million years ago. Amber, which is essentially petrified tree sap or resin, represents the crown jewels of fossilized insects, for it captures minute details such as webs, eggs, and the complete intact innards of its entombed. The two oldest fossilized mosquitoes on record are those preserved in amber from Canada and Myanmar, dating from 105 to 80 million years ago. While the global environments these original bloodsuckers patrolled would be unrecognizable to us today, the mosquito remains the same. Our planet was vastly different from the one we currently inhabit, as were most of the animals that called it home. If we navigate the evolution of life on Earth, the devious partnership between insects and disease becomes strikingly clear. Single-cell bacteria were the first life form to appear not long after the creation of our planet, roughly 4.5 billion years ago. 
Spawning from a cauldron of gases and primordial oceanic ooze, they quickly established themselves, forming a biomass twenty-five times larger than all other plants and animals combined, and the foundation of petroleum and other fossil fuels. In one day, a single bacterium can spawn a culture of over four sextillion, twenty-one zeros, more than all other life on the planet. They are the essential ingredient and building block for all other life on Earth. As specification commenced, asexual, cell-dividing bacteria adapted and found safer and more favorable homes as permanent guests on or in other host creatures. The human body contains 100 times as many bacterial cells as it does human cells. For the most part, these symbiotic relationships are generally beneficial to the host as well as to the bacterial borders. It is the handful of negative pairings that cause problems. Currently, over one million microbes have been identified, yet only 1,400 have the potential to cause harm to humans. It is estimated that there are about one trillion species of microbes on our planet, meaning 99.999% have yet to be unearthed. Twelve ounces, a standard-sized pop can, of the toxin produced by the bacterium that causes botulism food poisoning, for example, is enough to kill every human being on the planet. Viruses then arrived, quickly followed by parasites, both mirroring the housing arrangements of their bacterial parent, ushering in the potent combinations for disease and death. The sole parental responsibility of these microbes is to reproduce and... To reproduce. Unlike bacteria, viruses are not cells. They are a collection of molecules and genetic hardwiring. Viruses are not considered alive because they lack three fundamental properties associated with living organisms. Viruses lack the ability to reproduce without the aid of a host cell. They hijack the reproductive equipment of a host cell, redirecting it to photocopy its own viral genetic code. Viruses also cannot multiply through cell division. Finally, they do not have a metabolism of any kind, meaning that they do not need or consume energy to survive. Given the absolute necessity to have a host in order to reproduce, viruses affect nearly every life form on Earth. Bacteria, viruses, and parasites, along with worms and fungi, have triggered untold misery and have commanded the course of human history. Why have these pathogens evolved to exterminate their hosts? If we can set aside our bias for a moment, we can see that these microbes have journeyed through the natural selection voyage just as we have. This is why they still make us sick and are so difficult to eradicate. You may be puzzled. It seems self-defeating and detrimental to kill your host. The disease kills us, yes, but the symptoms of the disease are ways in which the microbe conscripts us to help it spread and reproduce. It is dazzlingly clever when you stop to think about it. Generally, germs guarantee their contagion and replication prior to killing their hosts. Some, like the salmonella food poisoning bacteria and various worms, wait to be ingested. That is, one animal eating another animal. There is a wide range of waterborne diarrhea transmitters, including giardia, cholera, typhoid, dysentery, and hepatitis. 
Others, including the common cold, the 24-hour flu, and true influenza, are passed on through coughing and sneezing. Some, like smallpox, are transferred directly or indirectly by lesions, open sores, contaminated objects, or coughing. My personal favorites, strictly from an evolutionary standpoint, of course, are those that covertly ensure their reproduction while we intimately ensure our own. These include the full gamut of microbes that trigger sexually transmitted diseases. Many sinister pathogens are passed from mother to fetus in utero. Others that germinate typhus, bubonic plague, chagas, trypanosomiasis, African sleeping sickness, and the catalog of diseases that are the concern of this book, catch a free ride provided by a vector, an organism that transmits disease, such as fleas, mites, flies, ticks, and our darling mosquito. To maximize their chances of survival, many germs use a combination of more than one method. The diverse collection of symptoms or modes of transference assembled by microorganisms is expert evolutionary selection to effectively procreate and ensure the existence of their species. These germs fight for their survival just as much as we do and stay an evolutionary step ahead of us as they continue to morph and shapeshift to circumvent our best means of extermination. Dinosaurs, whose long progeny lasted from 230 to 65 million years ago, ruled the Earth for an astounding 165 million years. But they were not alone on the planet. Insects and their illnesses were present before, during, and after the reign of dinosaurs. First appearing some 350 million years ago, insects quickly attracted a toxic army of diseases, creating an unprecedented lethal alliance. Jurassic mosquitoes and sandflies were soon armed with these biological weapons of mass destruction. As bacteria, viruses, and parasites continued to insidiously and expertly evolve, they expanded their living space and real estate portfolio to include a zoological Noah's Ark of animal safe houses. In classic Darwinian selection, more hosts increased the probability of survival and procreation. Undaunted by these behemoth dinosaurs, belligerent hordes of mosquitoes sought them out as prey. These insect-borne infections, together with already long-established parasites, became more than the dinosaurs' immune systems could handle, theorized paleobiologists George and Roberta Poinar in their book What Bugged the Dinosaurs. With their deadly weapons, biting insects were the top predators in the food chain and could now shape the destiny of the dinosaurs just as they shape our world today. Millions of years ago, also just like today, insatiable mosquitoes found a way to secure their blood snack. This buzz-and-bite Happy Meal remains unchanged. Thin-skinned dinosaurs, equivalent to modern-day chameleons and Gila monsters, both of which carry numerous mosquito-borne diseases, were ripe quarry for tiny, inconspicuous mosquitoes. Even the heavily armored beasts would have been vulnerable, since the skin flanked by the thick keratin, like our fingernails, scales of plated dinosaurs, was an easy target, as was the skin of feathered, downy dinosaurs. In short, they were all fair game, just as birds, mammals, reptiles, and amphibians all are today. 
Think about our mosquito seasons or your personal, often protracted skirmishes with these tenacious enemies. We cover up our skin, we soak ourselves in repellent, we light citronella candles and burn coils, huddle around a fire, we swat and flail, and we fortify our positions with nets, screens, and tents. Yet no matter how hard we try, the mosquito will always find the chink in our armor and nip our Achilles' heel. She will not be denied her self-evident, unalienable right to procreate by way of our blood. She will target that one exposed area, pierce our clothing, and outmaneuver our best efforts to stymie her unrelenting assault and celebratory meal. It was no different for the dinosaurs, only they had no defensive measures. It is scientific speculation as to whether they were equipped with retractable, folding skin on their backs like our wrinkled modern-day elephants. When a swarm of mosquitoes settles on the smooth skin of an elephant, it suddenly contracts its skin into a series of accordion-like waves, crushing the unsuspecting mosquitoes. Since elephants cannot reach their backs with their tail or trunk, this ingenious evolutionary adaptation solves the problem. Given the tropical wet conditions during the age of dinosaurs, mosquitoes would have bred and been active all year round, increasing their numbers and potency. Experts liken it to swarms of mosquitoes in the Canadian Arctic. There aren't a lot of animals for them to eat in the Arctic, so when they finally find one, they are ferocious, says Dr. Lauren Culler, an entomologist at Dartmouth's Institute of Arctic Studies. They are relentless. They do not stop. You can be completely covered in a matter of seconds. The more time reindeer and caribou spend fleeing the onslaught of mosquitoes, the less time they spend eating, migrating, or socializing, causing a severe decline in populations. Ravenous mosquito swarms literally bleed young caribou to death at a bite rate of 9,000 per minute, or by way of comparison, they can drain half the blood from an adult human in just two hours. Amber-encased mosquito specimens contain the blood of dinosaurs infected with various mosquito-borne diseases, including malaria, a forerunner to yellow fever, and worms similar to those that now cause heartworm in dogs, and elephantiasis in humans. After all, in Michael Crichton's novel Jurassic Park, dinosaur blood DNA was extracted from the guts of amber-encased mosquitoes. CRISPR-like technology genetically engineered new living dinosaurs, creating a lucrative prehistoric theme park version of African lion safari. There is one small but important detail amiss with this script. The mosquito depicted in Steven Spielberg's 1993 blockbuster movie adaptation is one of the few species that does not require blood to reproduce. Many of the mosquito-borne illnesses that afflict humans and animals today were present during the age of the dinosaurs and ravaged populations with deadly precision. A blood vessel from a T-Rex revealed the unmistakable signs of both malaria and other parasitic worms, as does coprolite, petrified dinosaur dung, from numerous species. Mosquitoes currently transmit 29 different forms of malaria to reptiles, although symptoms are absent or tolerable as reptiles have built up an acquired immunity to this ancient disease. Dinosaurs, however, would have been void of such a shield because at that time malaria was a new recruit joining the team of mosquito-borne diseases roughly 130 million years ago. 
When arthropod-borne malaria was a relatively new disease, hypothesized the Poinars, the effects on dinosaurs could have been devastating until some degree of immunity was acquired. Malarial organisms had already evolved their complicated life cycle. Recently, when a handful of these diseases were injected into chameleons, the entire batch of test subjects died. While many of these diseases are not generally lethal, they would have been debilitating, like they are today. Dinosaurs would have been left incapacitated, sick, or lethargic, and vulnerable to attack or easy prey for carnivores. History does not warehouse well in neatly labeled boxes, for events do not exist in quarantined isolation. They exist on a broad spectrum, and all influence and shape each other. Historical episodes are rarely built on the ground of a single foundation. Most are the product of a tangled web of influences and cascading cause-and-effect relationships within a broader historical narrative. The mosquito and her diseases are no different. Take, for example, our dinosaur collapse model. While the dinosaur disease extinction theory has gained traction and credibility over the last decade, it does not supplant or supersede the common and long-held earth-shattering meteor collapse model. There is ample evidence and data from a breadth of scientific fields to indicate that a deep impact, leaving a crater the size of the state of Vermont, did occur 65.5 million years ago just west of Cancun in Mexico's now touristy Yucatan Peninsula. Dinosaurs, however, were already in drastic decline. It is theorized that up to 70% of regional species were already extinct or endangered. The asteroid strike, with the subsequent nuclear winter and cataclysmic climate change, was the knockout punch, accelerating their inevitable disappearance. Sea levels and temperatures plunged, and the Earth's ability to sustain life was harshly destabilized. Whether a catastrophist or gradualist, you cannot discount the probability that diseases, conclude the Poinars, especially those vectored by minuscule insects, played an important role in exterminating the dinosaurs. Long before the emergence of modern Homo sapiens, the mosquito was wreaking havoc and substantially altering the course of life on Earth. Aided by her role in eliminating these top-tier dinosaur predators, mammals, including our direct pre-hominid ancestors, evolved and flourished. The relatively sudden disappearance of the dinosaurs allowed the few dazed but determined survivors to rise from the ashes to eke out an existence in a dark, unforgiving wasteland of wildfires, earthquakes, volcanoes, and acid rain. Patrolling this apocalyptic landscape were legions of heat-seeking mosquitoes. After the asteroid impact, smaller animals, many equipped with night vision, prospered. They required less food, were not finicky eaters, had more options for shelter from the raging inferno, and no longer had to fear for their safety. Two of the most adaptable groups to survive, thrive, and ultimately spawn a variety of new species were mammals and insects. Another was beaked birds, the only animal living today that is thought to be a direct descendant of dinosaurs. Given this unbroken family tree, birds harbored and disseminated numerous mosquito-borne diseases to a vast array of other animal species. 
Birds are still a primary reservoir for numerous mosquito-induced viruses, including West Nile and an assortment of encephalitides. Within this maelstrom of rebirth, regeneration, and evolutionary expansion, the ongoing war between man and mosquito was made. While dinosaurs perished, the bugs that aided in their demise endured to inject death and disease into humanity throughout our history. They are the ultimate survivors. Insects remain the most prolific and diverse catalog of creatures on our planet, accounting for 57% of all living organisms and an astounding 76% of all animal life. When compared to mammals, which comprise a paltry 0.35% of species, these numbers heighten the overall impact of insects. They quickly become asylums and the optimal hosts for various bacteria, viruses, and parasites. The sheer volume and variety of insects offered these microorganisms a greater chance for continued existence. The natural transmission of diseases from animals to humans is termed zoonosis, animal sickness in Greek, or more commonly referred to as spillover. Currently, zoonosis accounts for 75% of all human diseases and is on the rise. The group that has seen the sharpest increase over the last 50 years is the arboviruses. These are viruses that are transmitted by arthropod vectors like ticks, gnats, and mosquitoes. In 1930, only six such viruses were known to cause disease in humans, with mosquito-borne yellow fever being by far the most deadly. The current total now stands at 505. Many older viruses have been formally identified, and new ones, including West Nile and Zika, made the swing from animal to human hosts through an insect vector, in this case the mosquito. Given our genetic similarities and common origin, 20% of our diseases are shared by and transferred from our ape cousins through various vectors, including mosquitoes. She and her diseases have stalked us through our evolutionary tree with dexterous Darwinian precision. Fossil evidence suggests that a form of the malaria parasite, which made its first appearance in birds 130 million years ago, plagued our primary human ancestors as early as 6 to 8 million years ago. It was precisely at this time that early hominids and chimpanzees, our closest relative with 96% identical DNA, shared a final common ancestor and the humanoid line diverged from that of the great apes. Currently, humans and chimps share 99.4% of critical non-synonymous or functionally important DNA and are ten times more closely related than our mice and rats. Given this close genetic relationship, some scientists have argued that the two living species of chimpanzees, the bonobo and the common chimpanzee, belong in the genus Homo, currently occupied only by modern humans. Our primordial malaria parasite companion shadowed both evolutionary lines and is currently shared by humans and all great apes. In fact, it is theorized that our hominid line gradually shed our thick fur to keep cool on the African savanna, while making it easier to find and combat body parasites and biting insects. Malaria, the oldest and cumulatively the deadliest of the human infectious diseases, seeped into our very earliest human history, 
emphasizes historian James Webb in Humanity's Burden, offering a sweeping account of the disease. Malaria is thus an ancient and a modern scourge. For much of its career it left little trace. It sickened us in early epochs long before we were able to record our experiences. Even in recent millennia, it has frequently lain silent in the diverse records of our pasts, too common a disease to claim much notice. At other times, epidemic malaria has careened violently across the landscapes of world history, leaving death and suffering in its wake. Dr. W. D. Tigert, an early malariologist at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, bemoaned, Malaria, like the weather, appears to have always been with the human race, and as Mark Twain said about the weather, it seems that very little has been done about it. Compared to mosquitoes and malaria, Homo sapiens is a new kid on the Darwinian block. It is generally accepted that we began our rapid ascent as modern Homo sapiens, wise man, only roughly 200,000 years ago. Adhering to acclaimed historian Alfred W. Crosby's paradigm, these dates and others cited are subject to discrepancy and controversy. For our purposes, we will focus on chronology and relative time frames, not absolute dates. At any rate, we are a relatively new species. To understand the sprawling and stealthy influence of the mosquito on history and humanity, it is first necessary to appreciate the animal itself and the diseases it transmits. I am not an entomologist, a malariologist, or a physician of tropical medicine, nor am I one of the countless unsung heroes fighting in the trenches of the ongoing medical and scientific war against mosquitoes. I am a historian. I leave the complex scientific explanations of the mosquito and her pathogens in the hands of these experts. Entomologist Dr. Andrew Spielman advises us, to meet the health threats that are growing worse in many corners of the world, we must know the mosquito and see clearly her place in nature. More importantly, we should understand many aspects of our relationship to this tiny, ubiquitous insect and appreciate our long historical struggle to share this planet. In order to best appreciate the rest of our story, however, we first must know what we are up against. To encapsulate Chinese general Sun Tzu's timeless 5th century BCE treatise, The Art of War, know your enemy. According to an orthodox quotation erroneously attributed to Charles Darwin, it is not the strongest of the species that survives, nor the most intelligent that survives. It is the one that is most adaptable to change. This often-referenced quotation does not appear in any of Darwin's published writings, journals, or letters. Regardless of its origin, the mosquito and its diseases, most notably malaria parasites, are the quintessential example of this passage. They are masters of evolutionary adaptation. Mosquitoes can evolve and adapt quickly to their changing environments within a few generations. During the Blitz of 1940 to 1941, for example, as German bombs rained down on London, isolated populations of Kulex mosquitoes were confined to the air raid tunnel shelters of the underground tube along with the city's resilient citizens. These trapped mosquitoes quickly adapted to feed on mice, rats, and humans instead of birds and are now a species of mosquito distinct from their above-ground parental counterparts. 
The British fighter-bomber aircraft Mosquito entered service in late 1941, shortly after the Battle of Britain. What should have taken thousands of years of evolution was accomplished by these mining sapper mosquitoes in less than 100 years. In another 100 years' time, jokes Richard Jones, former president of the British Entomological and Natural History Society, there may be separate Circle Line, Metropolitan Line, and Jubilee Line mosquito species in the tunnels below London. While the mosquito is miraculously adaptable, it is also a purely narcissistic creature. Unlike other insects, it does not pollinate plants in any meaningful way or aerate the soil, nor does it ingest waste. Contrary to popular belief, the mosquito does not even serve as an indispensable food source for any other animal. She has no purpose other than to propagate her species and perhaps to kill humans. As the apex predator throughout our odyssey, it appears that her role in our relationship is to act as a countermeasure against uncontrolled human population growth. In 1798, English cleric and scholar Thomas Malthus published his groundbreaking An Essay on the Principle of Population, outlining his ideas on political economy and demography. He argued that once an animal population has outpaced its resources, natural catastrophes or checks, such as drought, famine, war, and disease, will force a return to sustainable population levels and restore a healthy equilibrium. Malthus bleakly reasons, The vices of mankind are active and able ministers of depopulation. They are the precursors in the great army of destruction and often finish the dreadful work themselves. But should they fail in this war of extermination, sickly seasons, epidemics, pestilence, and plague advance in terrific array and sweep off their thousands and tens of thousands. Should success be still incomplete, gigantic inevitable famine stalks in the rear. Enter the mosquito as the main human Malthusian check in this grim apocalyptic vision. This unrivaled dealing in death is primarily inflicted by only two perpetrators with no harm to themselves, Anopheles and Aedes mosquitoes. The leading ladies of these two species circulate the entire catalog of more than 15 mosquito-borne diseases. Throughout our existence, the mosquitoes' toxic twins of malaria and yellow fever have been the prevailing agents of death and historical change, and will largely play the role of antagonists in the protracted chronological war between man and mosquito. It is not always easy to remember to give yellow fever and malaria their due. Mosquitoes and pathogens left no memoirs or manifestos. Before 1900, prevalent understanding of disease and health did not recognize their roles, and no one grasped their full significance, upholds J.R. McNeil. Subsequently, historians living in the golden age of health normally failed to see their significance either, but the mosquitoes and pathogens were there, and they had effects on human affairs that we can see reflected in archives and memoirs. Yet malaria and yellow fever are only two of over fifteen diseases that the mosquito bestows upon humans. The others will provide the supporting ensemble cast in our story. Mosquito-borne pathogens can be separated into three groupings, viruses, worms, and protozoans, parasites. The most abundant are the viruses, yellow fever, 
Dengue, Chikungunya, Mayaro, West Nile, Zika, and various encephalitides, including St. Louis, equine, and Japanese. While debilitating, these diseases, aside from yellow fever, are generally not prolific killers. West Nile, Mayaro, and Zika are relatively new entries to the index of mosquito-borne disease. There are currently no vaccines, save that for yellow fever, but for the most part, survivors are blessed with lifetime immunity. Since they are closely related, common symptoms include fever, headaches, vomiting, rashes, and muscle and joint pain. These symptoms usually begin three to ten days after contagion from a mosquito bite. The vast majority of those infected recover within a week. Although exceptionally rare, severe cases can result in death caused by viral hemorrhagic fevers and a swelling of the brain, encephalitis. The old and young, pregnant women, and those with escorting medical issues make up the disproportionate bulk of casualties from these viral infections, which are all spread predominantly by the Aedes mosquito. Although globally present, the highest infection rates occur in Africa. Occupying the top tier of the virus class is yellow fever, which often amplified and accompanied endemic malaria. It is an accomplished killer, first stalking humans in Africa about 3,000 years ago. Until recently, it was a global historical game-changer. This adversary targets healthy young adults in the prime of life. Although a successful vaccine was discovered in 1937, between 30,000 and 50,000 people still die annually of yellow fever, with 95% of fatalities occurring in Africa. For about 75% of those infected with yellow fever, symptoms mirror those of its viral cousins mentioned above and usually last three to four days. For the unlucky 25% or so, after a day of respite, they enter a second toxic phase of the disease, complete with fever-induced delirium, jaundice due to liver damage, severe abdominal pain, diarrhea, and bleeding from the mouth, nose, and ears. The internal corrosion of the gastrointestinal tract and kidneys induces vomit of bile and blood, the consistency and color of coffee grounds, giving rise to the Spanish name for yellow fever, vomito negro, black vomit, which is followed by coma and death. The latter, usually occurring two weeks after initial symptoms, might well have been the last pleading wish of many victims. While this portrayal paints a grisly picture, it also embodies the gnawing terror that yellow fever implanted in pacing and brooding populations across the world, especially in the European colonial outposts of the New World. The first definitive outbreak in the Americas occurred in 1647, disembarking with African slaves and fugitive mosquitoes. Academics still debate the first appearance of yellow fever in the Americas, with some suggesting outbreaks as early as 1616. It must have been agonizing to wonder when and where Yellow Jack, as the British christened it, would strike next. While fatality rates from yellow fever averaged around 25%, depending on the strain and conditions of an epidemic, it was not uncommon for death rates to reach 50%. A handful of outbreaks reached 85% in the Caribbean. The salty sea stories of ghost ships like the Flying Dutchman are based on true accounts, Whole crews might succumb to yellow fever, 
months passing before the aimlessly drifting ships were corralled. Boarding parties were greeted with nothing but the stench of death and the rattle of skeletons, with no revealing clues as to the cause. Luckily for survivors, who were left incapacitated for weeks, yellow fever is a one-shot deal. Lifetime immunity is imparted to those who defang the dogged virus. Although dengue, thought to have its 2,000-year-old ancestral origins in monkeys of Africa or Asia, or both, is far more benign than its close cousin, yellow fever, the two viruses can provide limited and partial cross-immunization. Spread by the Aedes, Anopheles, and Culex mosquito breeds, the sole member of the worm category is filariasis, commonly referred to as elephantiasis. The worms invade and obstruct the lymphatic system, causing an accumulation of fluids resulting in extreme, if not spectacular, swelling of the lower extremities and genitals, while also frequently causing blindness. Engorged scrotums, easily surpassing the size of large beach balls, are not unusual. For women, the labia can become almost as grotesque. Although this stigmatizing disease is treatable with inexpensive modern medicine, unfortunately, 120 million people annually still suffer from filariasis, predominantly in the tropics of Africa and Southeast Asia. Malaria stands alone in the protozoan or parasite classification. In 1883, Scottish biologist Henry Drummond called parasites a breach in the laws of evolution and the greatest crime against humanity. Malaria is the unsurpassed scourge of humankind. Currently, almost 300 million unlucky people annually contract malaria from the bite of an Anopheles mosquito, the very same one that bit you and stole your blood during your camping vacation. Without your having the slightest clue, the malaria parasite has entered your bloodstream and is making a mad dash for your liver where it can rest and recuperate while it plans its procreative assault on your body. You, however, are back home from your camping trip, madly scratching your mosquito bites with the malaria parasite furtively hibernating in your liver. How sick you become, and your likelihood of death, is dependent upon which strain of malaria you have contracted. It is possible to be infected with more than one species at a time, although usually within this battle the deadliest strain outperforms the others. They are all perpetrated by 70 of the 480 species of your Anopheles offender. There are over 450 different types of malaria parasites vexing animals across the world, with five of them afflicting humans. Three types, Nolesi, Ovale, and Malariae, are not only extremely rare, but have a comparatively low mortality rate. Nolesi recently made the zoonotic jump from the macaque monkey in Southeast Asia, while the uncommon ovale and malariae now exist almost exclusively in West Africa. We can rule out that you have contracted any of these three, which leaves us with the two most dangerous and widespread contenders battling for hegemony of your health and life, Vivax and Falciparum. The malaria parasite roosting in your liver will traverse through an impressive seven-stage life cycle. It must have multiple hosts to survive and procreate. The mosquito and an army of secondary vectors. Humans, apes, rats, bats, rabbits, porcupines, squirrels, a volary of birds, a congress of amphibians and reptiles, 
and a swarm of others. Unfortunately, you are that host. Following that fateful mosquito bite, this miscreant will mutate and reproduce inside your liver for one to two weeks, during which time you will show no symptoms. A toxic army of this new form of the parasite will then explode out of your liver and invade your bloodstream. The parasites attached to your red blood cells quickly penetrate the outer defenses and feast on the inner hemoglobin. Inside the blood cell, they undergo another metamorphosis and reproductive cycle. Engorged blood cells eventually burst, spewing both a duplicate form, which marches forward to attack fresh red blood cells, and also a new asexual form that relaxedly floats in your bloodstream, waiting for mosquito transportation. The parasite is a shapeshifter, and it is precisely this genetic flexibility that makes it so difficult to eradicate or suppress with drugs or vaccines. You are now gravely ill with an orderly, clockwork progression of chills, followed by a mercury-driving fever touching 106 degrees. This full-blown cyclical malarial episode has you in its firm grip, and you are at the mercy of the parasite. Lying prostrate and agonizingly helpless on sweat-soaked sheets, you twitch and fumble, curse and moan. You look down and notice that your spleen and liver are visibly enlarged. Your skin has the yellowing patina of jaundice, and you vomit sporadically. Your mind-melting fever will relapse at precise intervals with each new burst and invasion of the parasite from your blood cells. The fever then subsides while the parasite eats and reproduces inside new blood cells. The parasite uses sophisticated signaling to synchronize its sequencing, and this entire cycle adheres to a very strict schedule. This new smart hub asexual form transmits a chemical bite-me signal in our blood, significantly boosting the chances of being picked up by a mosquito from an infected human to complete the reproductive cycle. Inside the stomach of the mosquito, these cells mutate once more into both male and female varieties. They quickly mate, producing thread-like offspring versions of the parasite, which make their way out of the gut and into the salivary glands of the mosquito. Within the saliva glands, the malaria parasite shrewdly manipulates the mosquito to bite more frequently by suppressing the production of her anticoagulant to minimize her blood intake during a single feeding. This forces her to bite more frequently to get her required fill. In doing so, the malaria parasite ensures that it maximizes its rate and range of transfer, its procreation, and its survival. Malaria is a remarkable example of evolutionary adaptation. It was this salivary configuration of the parasite that was transferred to you by that damned mosquito on the camping trip you took over two weeks ago. But the question remains, what type of malaria has left you incapacitated with enervating recurrent symptoms? If it is the dreaded falciparum, you may recover, or you may enter a second phase of the disease called cerebral or severe malaria. Within a day or two, you will experience seizures, coma, and death. The fatality rate from falciparum is dependent upon strain, location, and numerous other factors, but nevertheless straddles 25% to 50% of those infected. Of those who survive cerebral malaria, 
roughly 25% will have permanent neurological damage, including blindness, loss of speech, severe learning disabilities, or paralysis of the limbs. Malaria takes a life every 30 seconds. Sadly, 75% of the deceased are children under 5 years of age. Falciparum is the vampiric serial killer, accounting for 90% of malarial deaths, and Africa currently houses 85% of all global malarial deaths. Unlike yellow fever, malaria hunts the young and immunologically weak. Pregnant women also suffer disproportionately. In this unfortunate scenario, if you are lucky enough to have contracted Vivax, you probably will not die. Vivax is the most common form of malaria, especially outside of Africa, and is responsible for 80% of all malaria cases, but it is not generally a killer. Its mortality rate hovers around 5% in Africa, with an even lower 1-2% to in the rest of the world. It is almost impossible to describe the scale of the devastation the malarial Anopheles mosquito can wreak. Even today, the horror of malaria is hard to comprehend. So it is near unfathomable to imagine malaria in the historical context when causes were unknown and treatments did not exist. J. A. Sinton, an early 20th century malariologist, conceded that the disease constitutes one of the most important causes of economic misfortune, engendering poverty, diminishing the quantity and quality of the food supply, lowering the physical and intellectual standard of the nation, and hampering increased prosperity and economic progression in every way. Add to this description the physical, emotional, and psychological effects of such an enormous death toll. Currently, it is estimated that endemic malaria costs Africa roughly 30 to 40 billion dollars a year in lost commercial output. Economic growth in malarious countries is 1.3% to 2.5% lower than the adjusted global average. Cumulatively, spanning the modern era after the Second World War, this equates to a 35% lower gross domestic product GDP, than it would have been in the absence of malaria. Malaria sickens and cripples economies. Thankfully for you, the odds were in your favor and you shook off your stint of Vivax malaria within a month. I am sorry to tell you, however, that your suffering is likely not over. Neither falciparum nor nolesi causes malarial relapse. A second communicable bite from a malarious mosquito is required for reinfection. Regiments of parasites from the other three types of malaria, including vivax, however, lie in ambush in the liver and can generate repeated relapses for up to 20 years. A British veteran of the Second World War had a malarial encore 45 years after his infection in 1942 during the Burma campaign. In your case, the time frame for vivax is generally one to three years. Nevertheless, you can always be re-injected by another mosquito bite. Temperature is an important element for both mosquito reproduction and the life cycle of malaria. Given their symbiotic relationship, they are also both climate-sensitive. In colder temperatures, it takes longer for mosquito eggs to mature and hatch. Mosquitoes are also cold-blooded and, unlike mammals, cannot regulate their own body temperatures. They simply cannot survive in mercury-dipping environments below 50 degrees. 
Mosquitoes are generally at their prime health and peak performance in temperatures above 75 degrees. A direct heat of 105 degrees will boil mosquitoes to death. For temperate, non-tropical zones, this means that mosquitoes are seasonal creatures with breeding, hatching, and biting taking place from spring through fall. Although never seeing the outside world, malaria needs to contend with both the short lifespan of the mosquito and temperature conditions to ensure replication. The time frame of malaria reproduction is dependent upon the temperature of the cold-blooded mosquito, which itself is dependent upon the temperature outside. The colder the mosquito, the more sluggish malaria reproduction becomes, eventually hitting a threshold. Between 60 and 70 degrees, depending on the type of malaria, the reproductive cycle of the parasite can take up to a month, exceeding the average lifespan of the mosquito. By then, she is long dead and brings malaria down with her. In your case, you might have avoided this whole bloody malarial ordeal if you had decided on either a frigid or a blisteringly hot vacation destination, or elected not to brave the wilds during the mosquito's peak campaigning season, in most temperate zones, of late spring to early fall. Alternatively, you could have opted out of your camping vacation altogether. In short, warmer climates can sustain year-round mosquito populations, promoting endemic, chronic and ever-present, circulation of her diseases. Abnormally high temperatures from the effects of La Nina or El Nino can cause seasonal epidemics, a sudden outbreak of a disease that burns through populations before fading away, of mosquito-borne diseases in regions where they are generally absent or fleeting. Intervals of natural or artificially induced global warming also allow the mosquito and her diseases to broaden their topographical range. As temperatures rise, disease-carrying species, usually confined to southern regions and lower altitudes, creep north and into higher elevations. The dinosaurs could not survive the meteoric, crashing climate change, and they could not evolve quickly enough to outrun the onslaught of mosquito-borne disease. The tiny mosquito helped pave the way for their destruction, escorting in the evolutionary age of mammals, our hominid ancestors, and, eventually, modern Homo sapiens. As a survivor, she also set the table for her historic flight to global ascendancy. Unlike the dinosaurs, however, humans evolved to fight back. Through hasty natural selection, suits of hereditary immunological armor against the mosquito have been passed down through our Homo sapien family tree. Our DNA displays these genetically encoded keepsakes as reminders of the deadly and protracted war for survival our early ancestors fought against a merciless mosquito enemy.